Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, I'm delighted to say that last week, the live MK3D shows returned to the BFI South Bank in London. It was a socially distanced affair with all COVID protocols followed. Everyone in the audience was wearing masks. Everyone was spaced out. And even on stage, there was a gap between me and my guests. And what great guests they were. So we've decided to split this MK3D show up into two Kermode on Film specials. On our next episode, you'll hear from Edgar Wright, talking about everything from Hot Fuzz to the Sparks Brothers to Last Night in Soho. But on this week's Kermode on Film, you're going to hear from our first guest, the intimacy coordinator, Eater O'Brien. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the return of MK3D live at the BFI South Bank. Uh, hello, uh, it's really lovely to be back. Um, I, I hope everybody has managed to get through uh, lockdown as best as possible. I know that uh, people have suffered losses, all of us, and great to be back. Uh, on the upside, Donald Trump's fucked off, so hooray. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is really scary, is it? The last time we were here doing this, he was still president. And now, he, I think he's lost the election seven times now. And Giuliani's lost his license to practice, and uh, the Trump company has been indicted, and Weiselberg is either going to prison or he's going to flip on Trump, and uh, Nepotism Barbie, uh, Cokey Flops Wet Ken, and The Spare look like they're all worried about which one Donald's going to sell down the, down the river first. So hooray! That's all great. Um, we did take some audience questions by email, so I'll do that. I've also been asked not to move around so much. Which is kind of hard for me because I kind of like, but I'm not. I'm going to do. I'm going to do less. So, here are some questions that came in on email to avoid, you know, kind of calling out. Oh, we got a fantastic show today. So we got a fantastic show. Really, really fantastic show. It's great. Uh, that's not on the script. Here we go. So this came in from Ian Levine, who I don't know whether he's in the audience or not, and I can't say shout out because you're not allowed to. So Ian, if you're in the audience, just think positive thoughts. That was a yes, wasn't it? Have you seen a film, have you ever seen a film and considered it to be a load of pretentious old nonsense, but other critics have loved it? Now, this obviously isn't specific to, uh, you know, to the last, uh, last 18 months, but the answer to that, well, yes, obviously several times. The two uh, obvious uh, examples of this are 
Breaking the Waves, which, as I may have told you before, it was not a favourite of mine, and, and Film Socialisme. The reason I, I mentioned these two, Film Socialisme, because the Cannes Film Festival was just starting, and I saw Jean-Luc Godard's uh, Film Socialisme at Cannes. I think it was the last year that I went to Cannes. I did think, if we're going to have to suffer this kind of thing again, I'm really never coming back. In the case of Breaking the Waves, which is the Lars von Trier film, when I interviewed Lars von Trier, I felt it was very necessary, about another film which I'd really liked, I felt it was necessary to explain, to be honest and say to him, uh, I have to tell you that I absolutely hate Breaking the Waves. And he said, but did you really hate it? And I said, no, I hated it. And he said, but did you really hate it? I went, yeah, Lars, I, I, just, I hated it. And he went, but did you really, really hate it? And I said, yeah, Lars, I absolutely, it's one of my least favorite films of all time. He said, good, we are going to get on very well. The thing that he didn't want was, he didn't want somebody to just watch it and go, well, that's okay. And that I, I had a nerve-wracking experience with it, which is that I went to see it with a bunch of critics, and I hated it, and everyone loved it. And then the film came out in the cinema some time ago now. And my wife, when it came out, Linda, said to me, she said, I want to go and see Breaking the Waves. And she, I said, well, you, you don't, it's terrible. She said, yeah, no, I, I, uh, lots of other people that I respect think it's good. And I said, okay, fine. So we went back to see it um, at the, the Harbour Light Cinema in Southampton, which, I, which I've been back to since this all ended, which is great. And uh, she said, we can't sit together because you will just huff and puff all the way through the film. And that will be really annoying. So we sat separately and the film started and I hated it all over again. Right from the opening frame, I hated everything about it. But the whole of the rest of the audience loved it. Everyone loved it. Critics loved it. Whole of the rest of the audience loved it. And at the end of the film, this, you know, the bells ring in heaven and the thing happens and the curtains close and there was this silence and everyone got up very quietly to start leaving the theatre. They were all going, it's a masterpiece. Oh, it's so powerful. It's a masterpiece. And Linda got up from the other side of the thing and I saw her across the way and she was like, she got, she, we walked together to the centre aisle not saying anything, and I thought, we are screwed. Because basically, if she really loves this film, we're gonna have to get divorced, because it's, it's like Mary Poppins, it's not negotiable. And we walked up the aisle, the, the other aisle. <laughs> we walked up the aisle and everyone was going, oh, so powerful. Lars von Trier, he's foreign, yeah, it's marvelous. <laughs> and, and we got to the top, and I was thinking, this is really, and I turned to her, I said, and? and she went, bollocks. And I thought, that's it, fine. <laughs> we celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary next year. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, this is from Duncan Pathing. Duncan is here taking the photographs. You can't say anything, Duncan. You're so Duncan is standing in because uh, Julie uh, isn't able to be here today. So Duncan is here taking the photographs. So uh, let's have a, uh, a COVID-compliant round of applause for Duncan. This is in relation to something that I... The, the other night, for the first time in my entire life, I watched a football match. I've never seen a football match before. Um, apparently, I was a lucky talisman because we did quite well. So it was us first... Who was it? No, not Germany. The other one. Ukraine. England, Ukraine. No, was it Ukraine? Yeah, it was. Yeah, shh. Yeah, so it was England, Ukraine, and, uh, and we won 4-0. Um, and uh, I say we, like I was part of this, but, you know. Uh, and uh, so Duncan has written, with your newfound interest in football, 
what's your favorite movie about the beautiful game? And Nick immediately said, well, you know, you have to say Escape to Victory, which is not my favorite film about football. My favorite film about football is obviously Next Goal Wins, which, which, which I think they're doing a dramatized version of with Taika Waititi, but it is the most, if you know nothing about football, um, Next Goal Wins is just an absolute joy, and I, I love that film, and I understood everything about it, and I actually ended up punching the air when uh, one of the winning goals gets scored, which is very unlike me, because I usually don't have any interest in sport at all. Also, apparently, I asked on Twitter if all football matches were as good as that one that I watched, and the general feeling is no, so I think I'm kind of done now. Okay, this is from Noah Keat. What's your favorite film documentary of all time? Well, this is kind of interesting, because we are going to come on to a documentary later on in the show that I have to say is up, up there in my, in, my, in my top group. The thing that, uh, that springs to mind is, is Burden of Dreams, not least because I, I love Werner Herzog and I love documentaries about the making of films. And Burden of Dreams, if you've ever seen it, which is about making of Fitzcarraldo, is the most wonderful thing, not least because it has Werner Herzog at his most Werner Herzog. And it was the film, I think, that first made me fall in, rather than Fitzcarraldo itself, it was seeing Burden of Dreams, because Burden of Dreams is a film which suggests to you that Herzog is crazy, but absolutely dedicated to his vision. And, uh, and again, I'll, I'll tell you this because you probably know, there's the, the famous story about, I mean, I got shot at with Herzog. Herzog got shot while I was interviewing him. Um, you all know that anyway. If you don't, go to YouTube, Google Werner Herzog gets shot, okay? I was interviewing him for, for a BBC Two culture show thing. We were standing up on a promontory in Los Angeles. He was in the middle of a sentence. Somebody randomly took a pot shot at him with an air rifle, and it hit him in the, in the, in the groin area. And I was talking to him, and he's literally what looked like it happened was his trousers had exploded. This thing went... And Herzog went... Someone is shooting at us. <laughs> we should probably leave. And <laughs> during, um, during his fantastic career, he had this kind of very sparky relationship with uh, Klaus Kinski. And I asked him whether it was true that he, had, that he had pulled a gun on Kinski to stop him walking off. He said, oh, this story is so exaggerated. Everyone says, you know, the story is very exaggerated. Um, I said, but did you, have a, did you have a gun? He said, yes, I had a gun, but it was in my pocket. And I said, was it loaded? And he went, of course it was loaded. Why would I have an unloaded gun in my pocket? And uh, he said, yes, it was two bullets. Yes, one for him, one for me, if it didn't work out. But in the end, we made the film. It was all fine, so not a problem. So Burden of Dreams, if you've never seen it. And sorry, this isn't stapled together, so I'm kind of busting. Uh, okay, this is from either Gil or Jill, Greek Arete, at Greek Arete. Which poorly advertised films from 2020, 2021 should I put on my list to see? This was basically just an excuse for me to do. Since, look, since we last met, films that have come out that I think everybody should see. Has everyone seen Nobody? Yes. Isn't it the best thing, Evs? Bob Odenkirk kicks the crap out of people, and it's such good fun. I love Nobody. Uh, Relic, which I think is the best film I have ever seen about Alzheimer's, which sounds like a, everybody loves the father. I understand that. That's fine. It's okay. It's a bit actory. Uh, Relic is brilliant and is just fabulous. Miss Juneteenth, which for a while people thought was an Oscar contender and wasn't, but if you missed it, it's really, really worth uh, catching up with. And then St. Francis, which is just lovely. All of these came out during lockdown. They're all brilliant. It wasn't that they were badly advertised. It's just that, that you know, 
there wasn't a whole hoopla about them, but they, they're all fabulous films. But Nobody is just such a pleasure. I love Nobody. I, just, I, I hadn't had as much fun watching Nobody as I had since watching Skyfall. Um, no, I don't mean Skyfall, Skyfire, the one with Jason Isaacs and the volcano. Did, you, did any of you see Skyfire? I haven't spoken to you since then. Skyfire, oh my God, it's so brilliant. Right? Sorry, so this brilliant movie, Skyfire, Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs is a South African entrepreneur in a purple suit who has built a hotel on the side of a volcano, okay? And it's perfectly safe. And there's literally a line in it in which he goes, we're all going to be fine. And then the volcano blows up and then there's a whole bunch of stuff happens. And he does the whole thing with a South African accent. And I said, why have you got a South African accent? And he said, well, because the character I've got is based on Elon Musk. And I said... But Elon Musk hasn't got a South African accent. He said, I know, but I'd never heard him speak until we were halfway through the shoot. It was just too late by that point. <laughs> if you get a chance, watch Skyfire. It is, it's, it's just, it's, it's fabulous. And finally, this from, um, oh no, I'll come to that later on because that's going to lead us into something else. Yes, I'll do it now, but then we'll come back to it. Okay, so this is from uh, Scarebear. What's the best film you've seen since cinemas reopened? And what's the one film you're most looking forward to seeing in the coming months? I'm going to come back to this question a little bit later on because it relates very specifically to our, our second guest. However, I'm going to start you know, bringing our guests on stage. You can see we have got social distancing in the, in the thing. One of the things that's happened to me during lockdown is that I have watched a load of television, uh, which I, as you may know, if you're a regular, never watched television before, really. Um, so since lockdown's happened... I've watched all of Breaking Bad, all of Better Call Saul, which obviously isn't finished yet, all of The Wire twice, which is the, the best thing, you know, unbelievable. But also, brilliantly, and more recently, um, I was watching stuff that, you know, that was with Simon Mayo and I did this TV show, uh, uh, Kermit and Mayo's uh, Home Entertainment Service, which for some reason isn't on BBC iPlayer. I can't understand, but you can write to them and complain about it. It's very, very simple. It's very little effort, but I would appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Um, and so I watched uh, Normal People, which I thought was just brilliant. And I watched uh, I May Destroy You, which I thought was some of the most unbelievably... Uh, important and adventurous television I'd ever seen up there with The Wire. And, uh, and then I, I watched It's a Sin, which, if you're kind of my age, I think is, you know, both really historically brilliant and also just, you know, fabulously celebrational, despite the fact that it's a film about a very, very sort of, you know, dark period of history. The thing that all these have in common is that Ethan O'Brien was the intimacy coordinator on them. And I have to confess, I didn't know what an intimacy coordinator was. And I imagine that some of you in the audience don't know either. So please welcome to the stage the first guest on MK3D back after all of this, Eater O'Brien. Ita, welcome to the show. I'm sorry that there's a, but you know, this is how. So, as if you are speaking to a Labrador puppy or a small child, what is an intimacy coordinator? What, explain it to me. So, an intimacy coordinator is a practitioner that brings a professional structure to the intimate content. So, if you think of a stunt coordinator, yeah. they're going to talk to the director, read the script, look at what this moment of this stunt or this fight's about. Um, 
do a risk assessment, put in place crash mats. They're going to check out with the actors. Have you got a broken ankle? Is this okay for you? Um, but they're going to um, then teach those actors the skills to be able to either do a good fall or throw a punch. And then they're going to choreograph the fight absolutely clearly so that everything is known. It's safe. It's artistically serving the director's vision. It's, um, it's exciting so that when you put it up in front of the camera, um, the, the actors can do a really brilliant stunt or a really brilliant fight. Okay. We're doing exactly the same with the intimate content. Okay. Is, this a, is it just me being ignorant, or is this a relatively new area? No, it is before now, and my first job, I actually first of all put in place the intimacy guidelines when I had the joy of doing Philip K. Dick's, Ele Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams with um, Geraldine Chaplin. Anyway, so, so that was the first time I implemented it. Yeah. But the first time I actually worked as an intimacy coordinator was for sex education. Yeah. Yes, and then Gentleman Jack, and then Watchmen. And that was in 2018. Right, okay, so we are talking fairly recently in terms of, and w why then? What happened to, to make people suddenly conscious of this? This is it, because before then, with the intimate content, there was nothing. You know, and as the lovely Michaela saying at the BAFTAs, you know, sort of the awkwardness of the crew and the director, um, the internal devastation of the actor, as she put it before, with there being no professional structure, no way in order to be able to deal with this content in an open and clear way. Um, so the journey was, I actually, as a, I'm a movement, um, I was a dancer, actor, and then um, putting on my own work, and I was doing a devised piece of work looking at how I kept my actors safe. I started looking at what practices and principles I should put in place, and that was in 2014. One of my um, 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 fellow um, colleagues, Meredith Dufton, who's the head of movement at Mountview, said, please come and teach what you're developing, because I have to note all the intimate content with my actors. There is no structure. Please come and start teaching them what you're developing. Right. So that was in 2015. And then over the years, getting feedback from the students, developing the work, I started speaking to equity. I started sharing. So I very first shared the guidelines with the group of agents, the Personal Managers Association, in June of 2017. Um, but it was, it, was, um, it was a big shift. Before, um, before, at that point, the attitude was, you're an actor, you, should, you know what the job is, and therefore you should be able to do any degree of nudity, any degree of sex, sexual content, because that's what the job is. Right. And there was no process in order to deal with it professionally. And then the big turning point was the Weinstein allegations, and then the subsequent Times Up and Me Too movements. And in that environment, as, as you well know, of, the, um, of all the, 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 um, the productions, theatre, TV and film, all saying, we have to do better. We have to now work with respect. And so they created their codes of conduct. Yeah. And then within that attitude and that environment, and then it was, well, how within these codes of conduct do we then deal with the intimate content in a professional way? And I was there ready to go here. Here's the intimacy onset guidelines. Here's a professional structure. So essentially, you know, you, you had already thought about this stuff and you had the, the framework to be able to come and say, okay, this is a solution to what, you, what you, has always been an issue, but you haven't recognised it as an issue. That's right. That's right. And my, my sense was there's a couple of things. First of all, people are just embarrassed to talk about the intimate content. Yeah. So it was always the elephant in the room that wasn't discussed. And um, 
you know, and I was, I was on a workshop and it was fantastic. Um, some, some very experienced um, middle-aged directors in that country on this Zoom sharing of the intimacy guidelines and this director was sort of saying, you know, well, you know, an actor, he's read the script, you know, he knows that there's a, a moment of masturbation, so he knows what to expect. And I said, yes, but um, you, can you can choreograph it and you can film it in a way that can either make that actor incredibly vulnerable yeah. or you can have the shot from, from behind. You can you know, talk about what's the, what's the rhythm going to be, what's the energy of that, how, how, what's the shape of that within the, um, the scene, and then how you create it means that that actor feels completely taken care of, completely safe, and you as a director are still getting exactly the storytelling that you wanted with this intimate moment, but not compromising the actor, and he, you could see the penny drop going, oh, okay, I see. Okay. I want to show some clips of your work to kind of illustrate what it is that you're doing. So we have three clips. The first one is from uh, Normal People, and we asked you specifically you know, to, to ch help us choose some clips that represented the, the work that you're doing. So we're going to show an intimate scene from Normal People. Tell us just a little bit of the background of how you would have prepared the actors for this scene. Um, so first of all, and what's so lovely in all the productions that you've um, earmarked and you know, we've spoken about, um, the productions have listened to, to just what I've shared with you and yeah. put the process in place. So first off, really important, as, and as you know, this is new. So sharing the work, not just with the director and the actors, but with all of the crew. So sh sharing the process. And then um, it's just bringing, you know, as I, as I said, my journey has been as a professional dancer, actor, and then movement teacher, movement director. And it's just going, just dealing with the intimate content professionally, interrogating it like you do any other scene and talking about the intimate content openly, putting in place agreement and consent, and then checking out. Again, the, that's the other awareness. This is a body dance, just like a tango yeah. is a dance, just like a stunt is a body dance. So is you know, an intimate scene where you've got people moving in rhythm, penetration through to orgasm. So it's bringing that awareness. So, so, um, so that's all the preparation bog standard, actor-director rehearsal, I'm there listening, they're interrogating the scene. Why is that scene there? How does it push the storytelling forward? What is it telling us about those characters and those characters in relationship? I'm there present, so again, on this, just the joy, working with Lenny Abrahamson, such a beautiful, beautiful soul, such an amazing director, and these incredible actors, you know, you know looking at every detail of the scene, and again, the amazing writing. So we're honouring each and every beat of that scene, honouring Lenny's direction, and then once you get it up on his feet, then that's what you can create. Because obviously one of the things about the scene that we're about to watch is consent, and you yes. said that, that is all, that's all there in the original text, all those themes of consent. That's right, that's right. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that's Sally Rooney's incredible writing. You know, and, um, and that's what, you know, when you look at the scene and it's given proper consideration and proper time and space like any other scene would be, then we can make sure that we can honour each and every beat of those scenes. And before, when there wasn't an intimacy coordinator, when there wasn't just, just being open and transparent and communicating, when there wasn't the idea that actually it is a body dance, so you need a practitioner just like a stunt coordinator yeah. that's going to bring skills of where to hold, what's the rhythm, how does that rhythm journey through two people's bodies, you know, making sure that we don't have clashing pubic bone to pubic bone. Um, you know, but when you put all that in place, then, then you can create a scene that really serves as storytelling, allows the actor to bring all of their skills as the actor to the intimate content.
So one of the things that that raises is that you're, you're dealing with actors who are reading a script and they're seeing what's in it and then they're talking to the director and the rest of the production. Actually, also it's worth saying that if you've never been on a film set or a TV set, it is worth knowing that there are like 20 people around the room. You know, you see like an intimate scene with two people in it and there's a, you know, there's an electrician over there scratching his bum and there's somebody else doing And it, I mean, it is, there's a lot of people on set. The main difference between that and the next thing we're going to look at, which is a clip from uh, I May Destroy You, is that Michaela Cole, it was her, it was, you know, it's her script, it, it's her program. So tell me about working with her, because that, that program has been so brilliantly received, and I think it is extraordinary. But it does go into areas which a lot of other television programs wouldn't. Yes. Um, so, so first of all, you just have to go, Michaela Cole was utterly, utterly extraordinary. Um, you know, not only was she the writer um, and then lead actor, she was also co-director. So, you know, on days when she'd done her scene, she'd whip off her, her character clothes, put on her own clothes, be there next to Sam Miller, co-directing. She's also executive producer, so I'd be having breakfast with her, and she goes, oh, hold on a minute. I've just got to go and have a, have a production meeting before she gets into character. Um, and the other thing that was just so incredible about that was the, um, the, the ongoing, unfurling discovery of the script. Like, I'd say to her, like, what are you doing this weekend? And she'd say, I'm, I'm rewriting episode seven and eight. <laughs> um, and, and I also hear, annoyingly, that she's really nice. Oh, she's incredible. OK, she, is yes. there something bad about her? Is there anything? Does no, you know, and also no? She, she's taught me so much also about self-care. You know, so, 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 so things like she'd go home and, she, and her phone would be off and then she'd she back on in the morning. Yeah. So those sorts of boundaries. So, so she is truly, truly phenomenal. OK. Um, so, of course, um, consent. Yeah. And then the grey area, because, of course, most of consent or most of the times when things happen that aren't quite what you want, they don't happen, you know, of course, there's absolutely no's, but this grey area. So, again, it's the delicacy and the detail of her writing, you know, that, and then, and then um, so she's, again, written all of that. So then it's, it's bringing that, the clarity to all of that and making sure you're honouring it. Um, but I must admit, um, what was brilliant with Michaela, she really got the need to rehearse. Right. You know, that just like, um, as I say, if you do a tango, of course, you know, Baz Luhrmann's Roxanne tango, of course, you're not going to just talk to all your actors and talk to the dancers and then say, let's just leave it and then we'll just put it up in front of the camera and hope for the best. You know you're going to need a rehearsal. So that's the flip in the industry with the intimacy coordination is, as you say, this is a body dance, it need, it, we're choreographing it and that needs rehearsal. You know, so, so, um, so, so like some of the scenes, we rehearsed um, in the pre-production time in August. Right, okay. Um, and actually the scene that we're going to see was, was equally one of those. And then we actually, you know, some of them we didn't film through till January, February the following year. And you're, you, so you work through the rehearsals with them and presumably with the technicals as well, but, you know, where the camera's going to go, who's going to be where. Are you there on set when they're shooting? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And that is absolutely part of the process, being there on set whilst it's actually being shot. Yes, absolutely. So we rehearsed, so they, so they got that choreography in their bodies, they're not worried, going, oh, what, what's going to be asked of me today? But then, yes, so the idea of agreement and consent is a process, not a moment. You know, that stuff that they might have agreed to in the rehearsal process, you know, like I say, some of it was like seven months ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're going, that was like, so we had a situation where an actor had a cold sore, not suitable to kiss with a cold sore, not suitable to spread the herpes virus. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we're going, okay, a kiss on the lips is off, off the table, so now what? So we, did a, we looked at a kiss at the cheek and the kiss down the neck. 
Um, so, so you're re-agreeing touch, yes, making sure again that the beats of the scene are, um, are re-found if they've been rehearsed before, um, that crew showing and then the, the work with the, um, the camera operator, the DOP, yeah. then talking about camera angles. So, so I'm there present supporting all of that. Um, and then once the scene is up on its feet, at that point, then it's just like any other scene. The actors know what they're doing, they're comfortable, so they can bring all of their nuance, all of their detail of character and of storytelling to each and every take. The director can note them, can say, right, bring, bring a bit, bit more aggression into that, into this scene, or you know, make it a bit more throwaway. You know, so all of that detail, the director can be there, and I'll be there with, this, with the script monitor, the script supervisor on monitor, so there I'm doing things like if someone's wearing modesty garments, if someone's wearing a nipple daisy or, you know, um, flesh-coloured shorts, they're wearing it so it won't be seen. So yeah. I'll be going, OK, you've caught the nipple daisy in that, so you can use that take up until that moment, and then from there it has to be destroyed. Right, OK. OK, so you are, so you are there to, to ensure that everything that the actors have agreed to is what actually That's happens. Right. That's right. OK. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about this scene is it deals with menstruation, which is uh, something which you know, the, which television and film has quite often shied away from. Yes. To the point that you know, people are almost embarrassed to talk um. about it. And it occurs to me that one of the reasons that this scene works as well as it does must be that the performers, one of whom is the writer, are very relaxed with the material themselves. You couldn't have got this scene if they weren't feeling relaxed about it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Michaela wrote it, and as I, as you say, you know, you know, um, commercials with with blue liquid because you can't show red blood. You know, can't show anything that's red. You know, and and um, you know, half the population menstruates for roughly, you know, sort of like you know, forty years of their lives. How often do we actually see the paraphernalia of our menstruation? So again, reading this, I feel so privileged and delighted to be able to support Michaela to put this scene up on its feet. But absolutely, the beautiful Mawan who played Biagio. Um, so with him, I'm obviously there um, talking him through the beats of the scene when yeah. I'm checking in with him. And um, so it's very clear as well, um, you know, that, um, that this character wears a pad as well as a tampon, you know, and, and that's very important storytelling for, for her. Um, and you've seen in the scene before, she's, you know, she's gone to the loo, she's changing her, her pad. Anyway, so I'm going through the beats and Mawan's going, really? Really, does this happen? <laughs> and I'm going, yes, this does. So, so, um, so, yeah, so it's really important, that, you know, that that detail was there and then, you know, that was part of my job to share with Mawan, you know, again, to go with him, through with him, that every single beat of the scene, making sure that he was okay and comfortable, had any questions, any concerns. Um, and then also, obviously... The journey through to making this scene is um, is also the prop department, yeah. you know. So what they brought to it, and then how we na navigated, you know, shooting the whole scene without the props, and then when we have the close-ups, and how we place those props. So you know, as ever, any good production, it's only as good as the sum of all of its parts, you know. And and again, on I May Destroy You, you know, everybody's working to the top of their game. You okay? I'm on my period. It's okay. No, no, I've I've never done it on my period. With someone who actually knew I was on it. Sometimes you speak so fast. Look, it doesn't. Doesn't matter. I'm quite a heavy bleeder, so I'm just letting you know that seeing as you've been really helpful today. It's 
Giulio De Pesanti. Wanna try? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So the last clip I want to show is from you know a, a, a very a film a program that's very different in tone, uh, which is it's a sin, which is, I mean, considering the period that it's set in, which is in the you know the beginning of uh, of, of knowledge of AIDS, looks on the one hand like it's a very dark time and there is a lot of tragedy in it, but it's a, such a vibrant program and I you know you kind of watch it laughing and crying simultaneously, and the scene that we're going to show is a montage scene, which is like this kind of joyous, uh, you know, eruption of sex. So tell us a little bit about this and what we should be looking out for in this sequence. So, um, yes, as you say, so, so for me, this um, programme was very close to my heart because I was that back home hair musical theatre dancer in the 80s. <laughs> that was my life at, at that point in time, doing Joseph and On the Town and all the rest of it. I'd like to say that in the 80s, I was smashing the state <laughs> on picket, so that's very different. Yeah, um, yeah so, and, and so many friends, my, you know, my first um, singing teacher, you know, sort of was the first person, you know, in the 80s, you know, who was, you know, supporting me with all these lovely productions that I was doing, was the first person that I knew who caught HIV and within 18 months he was gone. Yeah. So, um, so it's very close to my heart, but absolutely what was so gorgeous about Russell T. Davis's writing is reclaiming the joy of gay male loving and you know, readdressing the shame that really was so prevalent. You know, so many of my friends, the fear and the, sh of, and the shame of coming out as a gay man. Yeah. And, um, and so that was so joyous. And then, so this montage, where the character Richie is absolutely discovering himself and gaining his confidence. And, um, and that's one of the things then with the costumes as well. It's very important as we go through this montage and his hairstyle that, um, you know, it starts with, you know, quite conservative with his knitted jumpers and gradually getting more and more open and more and more free. And the charting of each of these scenes with each of these couples. But, um, but it was, uh, you know, quite a delicate one to choreograph because for, for the amazing Ollie Alexander, you know, we, um, we had to shoot those over two days because the, the, the set, you know, was in a particular, you know, sort of, you know, real life set. Yeah. Um, so they only had that for two days. So they had to be done in that time. So for someone to be dealing with all those different partners 
you know, is, is quite a full-on thing, just physically and emotionally, um, you know, that, that degree of content. So, um, so I had an amazing team working with me. So I had two other intimacy coordinators. And, um, you know, and I said, right, this is what needs to happen. Someone needs to be dedicated to Oli, taking care of him. Someone needs to be with our um, amazing cast who are playing each of these characters. Again, we rehearsed in our, one of the first things we did in the pre-production time first rehearsals was having each and every one of those lovely actors who are working with Ollie going through each of the scenes again, letting them meet, talking about their concerns, what degree of nudity, what this particular, you know, charting the yeah. journey. Um, and again, clear choreography. And when all of that is known, the actors again, agreement and consent, you know, you know, what's okay for you? What, where are you okay to be touched? Most importantly, where, where are you not okay to be touched? I, you know, and again, that flip in the industry of saying, inviting the positive no. Yeah. We're saying we want to know what's your, your boundaries so that we can all work freely and trust your yes. And, and also when you can know that you can share your boundaries clearly, then you know that you can stay open and free as an artist to give all the best of yourself to the intimate scenes. And again, like you say, this montage is actually is such a joy and such, such a celebration of, of loving. Um, but the other yeah. thing that's lovely about it is because you've talked about choreography, is that it actually happens within the choreography of dance and social interaction and lovemaking. It's all part of the same, it's all like part, part of the same dance. That, that, that's right. So, um, so, I, so um, the, the pub scenes where he picks each other and every, every yeah. one of them up was actually the second day of, of the whole shoot. And I was there in the pub with each of them, and that was also great because we'd met them all, you know, three months ago in the rehearsal period. Then suddenly, well, they are with their 1970s garb, looking utterly amazing. Um, so yeah, so that was really important. So both both establishing them in those in the, those cameos in the pub, and then as he takes them off, and then obviously it was a couple of months down the line that then yeah. the intimate contents happens. But um, but again, it's it's really going, you know, with each of those people. Who is this character like? The one with the, the you know, the um, the Duran Duran hair, and then yeah. the one, you know, then the, the gay couple together with the threesome. So, really making sure that, again, what keeps the actor safe is who this character is, what the storytelling is. You fill the character up with detail, with with um, with intention, you know, and um, with with relationship, and then they can play all that, and then you bring all that to the choreography, and then that what allows the actors to, then to go somewhere else, you know, and be free and open with exploring in the, the and I'll, I'll say once again, it's a credit to you that none of this would work if, if the actors were not comfortable and relaxed. And I think in this, actually, more than any of the scenes that we look at, you can see how much everybody is comfortable and relaxed. OK, so let's have a look. So thank you so much for coming on and discussing this, not least because, as I said, I really didn't know anything about this until fairly recently. I'm going to ask you finally, do you think that the industry has changed now? The fact that, that you've worked on all these productions and the fact that people are now having conversations like this about what's acceptable, what the boundaries of consent are on set, is that part of a sea change in the industry? Um, I do believe so. In 2018, I was saying my hope is that within five years, you know, that the intimacy cord, the role of the intimacy coordinator will be understood, that no one would dream of doing an intimate scene without using the intimacy onset guidelines or employing an intimacy coordinator, and that's happened sooner than that. However, we've still got further to go, 
and then also part of my responsibility, so I founded Intimacy on set, so not only am I working on set, I'm also teaching the work in drama schools, I'm advocating and teaching the work across the globe, um, and I'm training up new intimacy coordinators. So, so now, um, then obviously with Michaela Cole's dedication of the BAFTA, which was just the most incredible moment, I had no idea, but, but that, um, her, her, her support of the role as well has, 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 has gone a long way to give trust. And as you say, you know, these, the, the productions that have come out and the scenes, you know, to, to see just working open professionally to see the content that you can create. I think the trust has come during this time of, of lockdown with these productions to go, okay, we don't have to be concerned that it's going to limit intimate content or step on the director's toes. There's absolutely a profession and, a, you know, there's a practitioner that's serving storytelling, serving the director, um, and helping everybody to create the best work. However, the recent allegations, you know, the, with um, with Noel Clark, um, were incredibly. Um, I was, yeah, I was so sad to, to that, that, that here's another wave, and you think that we are doing well, and that people are coming forward, yeah. and actually realise that still there's another whole wave to go. Um, so we have to do better in allowing. Um, anybody, actors or crew, anybody at all, to know that um, if they feel that they're being the victim of predatory behaviour, to, to come forward and to know that they will be supported, not vilified. There's still that sense, you know, as I was speaking to, to an actress and that they were saying, you know, um, this person is executive producer and lead, how can I and what will happen to me if I? That has to, we have to shift that. Right. It has to be that people are, you know, like just like any HR department in an office or anywhere, that people know that if anything's happening that makes them uncomfortable, that they feel it's predatory behavior, they can come forward, that there will be a proper HR process put in place that supports not only the victim, but the person who's accused as, as, the, as a perpetrator, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, that, um, and that the person who's coming forward will be listened to they will be treated in confidence, you know, and um, and so it gains trust that um, you know that um, that we can again help another another step to helping make sure that this industry, which is fantastic, isn't it? And you know, um, these amazing stories that th this is where our art is, or this is where our humanity is, isn't it? And reflecting ourselves back to each to ourselves to understand ourselves better, and we have to make sure that those within the industry that that we continue to make work in the best way possible with respect. And with everybody being, um, you know, feeling open and creative. This is the moment that I would usually reach over and shake your hand, but obviously <laughs> under the current circumstances, I can't do that. So, Ita, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, there we are. That was my interview with Intimacy Coordinator Eater O'Brien. You can hear the other MK3D guest, Edgar Wright, on next week's instalment of Kermode on Film. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, go over to our Patreon page where there's lots of video extras. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.